Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. We are proud to be well into our second year broadcasting to you, and we are forever grateful to our listeners and the tremendous feedback we get after each of our episodes. Please, if you haven't already, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify and sign up for our newsletter on Substack, where you can also provide us some feedback on our episodes. It really means a lot to us. This week, we will be talking to authors Benjamin Schwartz and Christopher Lane on their very important essay in the latest issue of Harper's Magazine entitled, Why Are We in Ukraine on the Dangers of American Hubris? But first, Dan and I would like to talk about a new Costs of War report that does just that. It updates the cost of U.S. 9-11 wars in human terms and tallies up nearly 4.6 million dead that can be tied directly or indirectly to the conflicts. According to Costs of War, the total death toll in the post-9-11 war zones in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen could be at least 4.5 to 4.6 million and counting, though the precise mortality figure remains unknown. Some of these people were killed in the fighting, but far more, especially children, have been killed by the reverberating effects of war, such as the spread of disease. These latter indirect deaths, estimated at 3.6 to 3.7 million, um, and related health problems have resulted from the 9-11 war's destruction of economies, public services, and the environment. Now, I know costs of war have taken a bit of criticism by including deaths in places where the U.S. military no longer operates, like Afghanistan uh, and, Af- and Afghans dying under Taliban rule. But the researchers say that the U.S. set into motion these conflicts, the reverberations of which are still felt today, like the lack of food and health care. They say in the report, quote, analytically, calling out indirect deaths are also an important mechanism for understanding the broader, longer term and lesser known consequences of war for the health of war zone populations. So, Dan, why do you think it is important for costs of war to continue this counting? And do you think it is an accurate estimation of the direct and indirect deaths attributable to U.S. wars over the last 20 years? Uh, thanks, Kelly. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I think it is it is very important that they keep doing this assessment. Uh, as they themselves will admit, uh, these findings are preliminary. These, these are not the, the the final numbers by any means. In fact, I, I think they would say that these are usually conservative estimates based off of what they've been able to find through open sourcing and 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 off of their models. And so they're not uh, the, the story is is not finished. The, the the research that needs to be done on this is still quite extensive, and so the the uh, the project of of tracking these deaths uh, will go on for a long time. Um, and and it's important in terms of accountability because I think one of the problems that we've had in our foreign policy debates, not just in the last twenty years, but going back even further back into the Cold War, is that the the victims. Uh, especially civilian victims of our wars uh, and the wars that we participated in uh, often get left out of the accounting. They often get pushed to the side or they, they're, they're forgotten about. And one of the things that I really appreciate about what the work, the, about the work that the Cost of War Project has done is that they have made a point of including every victim, uh, regardless of, of who was responsible for, for their death, uh, and acknowledging that all belligerents in the blame for these deaths uh they're, they're not 
they're not focusing solely on the U.S., but they're acknowledging that the U.S. is part of these conflicts, that the U.S. bears responsibility for what it does in these conflicts. And and far too often in our foreign policy debates, the U.S. is sort of let off the hook. And, and if there are terrible uh, civilian losses in war, it's treated as uh, either an accident uh, or as simply the, the cost of doing business. And that's that's really unacceptable. We we have to weigh these costs uh, just the same as we would consider the costs of the laws of American lives. And far too often, uh, the lives of foreigners are not given that weight in our uh, discussions. And and so, what I think this these reports do is to to center those victims of war and to make it clear that that they do count just as much as everyone else. Um. And so we we do need to have a, a fuller assessment of what war does to societies. And what I really liked about this new report is that it, it pays attention to costs beyond uh, those simply uh, killed and injured in combat. It pays attention to the, the social and political effects uh, that war has uh, in terms of destroyed infrastructure, destroyed economies, uh, destroyed livelihoods, uh, the, the increase in food insecurity that continues on. Uh, one of the points that they make in this new uh, report is that uh, there, are, there are over 7 million children in the countries under consideration uh, that suffer from acute malnutrition. And of course, I, I've paid close attention to this when we've been following the war in Yemen, uh, because that's one of the, the major contributing factors to the humanitarian crisis there is, is widespread malnutrition driven by conflict and by, by economic policies. Um, and then the other thing I think that can be built on or can be added to uh, th- these uh, reports, to this kind of research, is thinking about how economic warfare exacerbates human suffering in all of these war zones. Um, of course, you know, we've, we've seen the effects of blockade and economic warfare in Yemen, uh, but we also see it, we do see it in Afghanistan. And so I think it's appropriate to continue counting the victims in Afghanistan, even after U.S. troops have left, because Afghanistan is still subject to U.S. economic warfare policies, uh, both in the form of sanctions and in the form of, of seized and, and frozen assets. So so their economy is still suffering because of decisions made in Washington. Yeah. And, and countries will continue to experience the consequences of wars long after we leave. And I mean, you, you just look at uh, war zones in Southeast Asia, where you have leftover munitions and bombs from, yeah. from the Vietnam War. Uh, people will live with these the consequences of these wars for decades after we've all forgotten about them. Yeah, I mean, the environmental destruction that we wrought on Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia 50 years ago are still having an impact. I remember doing uh, some research, a little research before some remarks that I, I made on on the environmental impact of war um, on uh, farmers who can still no longer grow things where napalm had just stripped entire landscapes of their foliage in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Um, the use of napalm was absolutely destructive. And um, they are still fighting for compensation for that 50 years later, and we are still uh, resisting. So yes, this cost of war report is so important, but it is a reminder, like you said, 
that uh, these reverberations can go on generations. It's not just a, a matter of years. You mentioned um, Afghanistan and the uh, the suffering from malnutrition that's that exists there today. You know, there are indirect, indirect reverberations. If you look at all of the intentions that we had as the United States going into Afghanistan, helping to rebuild their their country. We went in there and we tried to build agencies. We tried to build infrastructure. Uh, we tried to create uh, a civil society, but we poured a lot of money that got lost into the country. And we built what could probably be perceived as a Potemkin village. It looked great at the time that we were building these schools, these healthcare facilities, um, you know, different agencies. And we pulled out of that country in 2021 and much of it collapsed because we didn't give Afghans the, the actual tools to run these things themselves, whether that was the schools or the healthcare, the civil society, uh, food distribution. Uh, so you add that to the sanctions and the frozen aid, and you realize that we had just staved off the inevitable, but we probably, without intention, made it worse because now there has been a, a drain of competency where doctors, professors, scientists, um, people, lawyers have all left the country over the last 20 years. And so we have a situation where even if they did have the means, like if, if all the sanctions had been lift, are lifted tomorrow and aid started pouring in, what you have is A, a Taliban government uh, that doesn't know, is not equipped with uh, turning on the lights, so to speak, and then you don't have the actual experts, the expertise in place to rebuild the country. And so whether directly or not, that is a result of our, our wars and the 20-year occupation and the fact that we thought we were, were going to lead this country into a new era and we actually made it more difficult for them to rebuild. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the cost of war doesn't talk about that, but I, but I know that there is a lot of concern out there in the aid community that Afghans just aren't equipped to help themselves. And, and, and we are a big part of that. Well, and when you have a system like was set up uh, with, with the U.S. propping up the government and, and largely propping up the economy by, by pumping in lots of aid money, uh, it made the country extremely dependent on those outside sources of funding. Right. And when those sources dried up, as as they did after the Taliban took over, uh, that that really just kicked them off the cliff. Uh, and so even even if there weren't all of those other factors that we talked about, that, that would have been a huge blow, uh, uh, certainly. Uh, and then talking about the environmental damage, again, coming back to that uh, is, is a really important point. I know you've covered this a lot in talking about Iraq and Afghanistan with the burn pits and the, the toxic damage that's done to the environment. Uh, and of course, the, the exposure of our soldiers uh, to those fumes that were created by these burn pits. Uh, but we also uh, have seen in, in Fallujah, just long-term effects in the, in the form of lots of birth defects yeah. from the exposures to chemicals uh, and, and uh, toxic materials that uh, 
that were unleashed on that city as part of the the war there. Uh, and so you know, these these are the people that will pay the price for the rest of their lives or for decades to come uh, as a result of, of a conflict that may, you know may have only lasted a few years as far as U.S. troops were concerned, but which will remain with them uh, forever. And so that it, it's those sorts of lingering costs, those, those sorts of hidden costs, uh, that that I think really need to be brought to the surface because when, whenever people talk about the use of force and, and intervening in other people's affairs, uh, as as we've done over the last few decades, uh, the to the extent that people even pay attention to the costs, they only th- look at the upfront costs in terms of casualties and and maybe some property damage. They they don't think about the, these longer generational costs that people pay, uh, especially when the countries are left uh, in ruins afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes me think of Ukraine and what's going on there now. So you have up front the devastation physically of that country, uh, the human toll, because you know that they have uh, all the military age men have been put into a cannon fodder at this point, and they're continuing to to pull people off the streets to to enlist then you have the environmental damage, which uh, we have uh, we're starting to see some uh, numbers in terms of like the billions of dollars that will be necessary to um, recoup. Um, their forest has been de- devastated. Their wildlife has been devastated. They're clean. They're suffering from a clean water s- shortage. So that's obvious. And then what you had just mentioned, the fact that we are giving them billions of dollars every year in economic aid to prop up their government, this will continue for as long as Washington is willing to do it. Will they have the capacity to get off that dependency at, at some point? So we have not learned the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan. In fact, we've, we've totally turned a blind eye to all of our responsibilities in those two places as far as I'm concerned. Will we do the same with Ukraine? I'm, I'm afraid we know the answer. We'd like to welcome to the show Ben Schwartz and Christopher Lane. Ben is a longtime writer and editor who served as national and literary editor of The Atlantic from 2000 to 2013, the national editor of The American Conservative, and more recently, the CEO of the U.S. Free Speech Union. Chris Lane is University Distinguished Professor of International Affairs and the Robert M. Gates Chair of National Security at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. He has written two books, The Peace of Illusions, American Grand Strategy from 1940 to the Present, and with Bradley Thayer, American Empire, A Debate. Ben and Chris have just published a very comprehensive essay for the latest issue of Harper's Magazine entitled, Why Are We in Ukraine? on the Dangers of American Hubris. Thanks for joining us, guys. Well, thanks for having us, Kelly. Absolutely. I'm very honored to have you here. Um, So you both wanted to make the point, and you make it very well and thoughtfully using a breadth of historical fact and argumentation that the United States basically set up this war in Ukraine today through a series of its own foreign interventions 
and geopolitical meddling in pursuit of global hegemony and dominance that went well beyond the NATO expansion. You build this case that Russia had not only been the target of this hubris, but had been watching the U.S. with growing uneasiness in other actions, the invasion of Panama in 1989, the bombing of Serbia in 1999, its regime change wars in Iraq and Libya. So I'm going to give you the easy question. Why did you feel the need to write this article now? And if you want to start off or Chris? Well, I'll, I'll start, uh, start off briefly. And, 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 and Chris, as, as usually you can, you can be the more eloquent of the, of, of the pair. Um, I would say we, Chris and I, um, I think made, we're making the calculation as, uh, you know, Harper's asked us to write this piece and we really saw no upside to writing it. In other words, that we, we knew, we knew what we thought. Um, and, um, and the, the, the publisher and, and president of Harper's, uh, John MacArthur, um, uh, uh, in, in broad agreement with, with our thinking about, uh, about all this. We knew what we thought, but we knew that we were, we were just going to, we, we were either going to be ignored if, when we wrote this, or to the extent we weren't ignored, we were going to be castigated as, 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 uh, as just uh, promulgating Putin's talking points. Right. You know? So there's like, as you all know, I mean, you all have been heroically um, sort of uh, a, 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 a almost lone vo- voices of dissent. Um, it's, incredibly um uh the consensus on on uh, on this war is incredibly monolithic anyone who opposes it or even questions it is just you know regarded as an instrument of the nefarious um putin regime so um but and we kept waiting for someone else to write sort of to write a big article in you know a kind of mainstream magazine um and Sort of, no one else sort of um, was um, was asked to do it. So, it, in, in some ways, we didn't think we were the most qualified. But since no one else was doing it, we kind of just kind of stepped into the breach, as it were. Oh, I think Ben's being excessively modest. I mean, this is not the first time that you and I have written about American foreign policy. Uh, goes back, I think we had an article in Foreign Policy Magazine in 1984 about uh, the dangers of uh, American hegemony. We wrote about uh, the Balkan Wars and U.S. policy. And I think we see this as part and parcel of an overall direction in American foreign policy or grand strategy based on the desire of the United States to be, not just to be a unipole, but to be a hegemon, dominant power in the international system. And it's pretty clear to me, based on you know my own historical research, that this goes back at least to the 1940s, while World War II was still being fought. The American policymakers envisioned that the U.S. would emerge from World War II as the only great power in the international system. Now, you know, Soviet Union got in the way of that for 40 years, but 
1991 to get us to favor of collapsing and disappearing and ushered in this unipolar world, um, which I think it's fair to say the American foreign policy establishment revels in this idea that the U.S. is a dominant, hegemonic, unipolar in international politics. Whether that's a wise policy or not is an open question. And I think Ben and I are part of a very small number of people asking the question, you know, is this really a good policy for us? And Ukraine has sort of brought this into focus. And one thing that I think is really important to start off with is if you, you know, it's, I guess, causation is like un, unpeeling an onion. Each time you take off one layer, there's another layer. But we can go back at least to the 1990-91 period when the Soviet Union was still in existence, but clearly wobbling. And President George H.W. Bush gave his famous chicken Kiev speech, and he warned the Ukrainians about the dangers of nationalism and what could happen if the Soviet Union fell apart uh, and the Ukrainians followed a nationalist policy that could lead them into conflict with Russia. Um, Vladislav Zubak, who teaches at the London School of Economics, has a terrific book published by Yale University Press a couple of years ago. It's called Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union. And the idea that Russia and Ukraine would be at each other's throats if the Soviet Union collapsed certainly would not have come as a surprise to anyone in either Kiev or Moscow during that period, because they knew that if, in fact, the Soviet Union dissolved that um that there was danger ahead for Ukraine and Russia, partly because of the status of Crimea and, and other reasons as well. Um, what strikes me, and I guess I have to admit that in the previous life, I, I was a lawyer and I went to law school. We spent a lot of time studying causation. Um, there's a proximate cause to this war. Sure, Putin, Vladimir Putin, gave the orders to start the war, but that hardly explains why this war happened. And Ben, I think, will go into a lot of detail about how American policymakers knew that taking or, or either taking Ukraine into NATO or leaving open the possibility of Ukraine into NATO cost an uh, important red line for the Russians. What, what I think is important to think about is go back to the run-up. Go back to December of and November of 2021 or January of uh, 2022 or February before the February 24th. The Russians made very clear. They even sent a formal diplomatic note to the United States about the need to renegotiate the post-Cold War security order in Europe, including no Ukraine in NATO. And we also know that the U.S. had extremely good intelligence. We knew that the Russians were planning to attack. We knew basically when they were, when they were planning to attack. So circumstantial evidence, sometimes the only evidence we have. But with this knowledge, with the knowledge that war was almost a certainty, why did the U.S. not respond in a positive way to the Russian diplomatic note and say, you know, you're right, this is, this is, something that we need to talk about. And we understand that the risk of conflict here is very high. So instead of going to war, 
let's sit down and negotiate. And there's certainly a lot of circumstantial evidence from the early days of the war that people, policymakers in the U.S. and um, in other places in NATO, thought that, um, that this was a great chance to break up Russia, to get rid of Vladimir Putin, to achieve regime change. Um, so the question is, you know, how much how much of the responsibility for this war is in Washington's court? Uh, you know, we had a chance possibly to avoid this war by negotiating in good faith with the Russians about NATO expansion. We didn't get that. It's all we got from Washington, from the Biden administration, was this rote recitation. NATO has an open policy. Any, any state can apply for membership in NATO, and we're not going to close the door to Ukraine. No, that, that was the issue. And it's clear that the United States did not want to negotiate that. And it's clear with the intelligence that we had that we knew what the result would be if we didn't negotiate. I just have a, a quick follow-up, and then I'll hand it over to Dan. And, and Ben, you, you raised this, that anytime someone talks like this and, and, and sets the table and points out that there has, has been 30 years of missteps, uh, provocations, uh, policies that have led to this moment, they um, are called Putin apologists. Uh, we are covering for Moscow and the debate is is primarily shut down right there. Do you fear, because now, you know, along with all the folks like yourselves who are saying that, you know, not only do we have to learn from our mistakes, but we got to make sure that we do not feed this beast and escalate the war to the point of no return, to the point of a direct U.S.-Russia war, uh, there are those like Victoria Nuland, for example, who I have heard in interviews say that until Putin goes, Ukraine will never be safe. Uh, the Atlantic is is consistently featuring writers like Elliot Cohen and Ann Applebaum that say this is an existential fight uh, for for democracy, for the liberal world order. And they also talk about regime change in the end. Do you fear that the same pathologies are in place that were in place 1990, 1999 and, and onward that will turn this into World War III if they don't get their way and see some sort of regime change in, in Moscow? Well, that's a that's a great question, Kelly. And, uh, you know, you and 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 Dan and, and Dan have argued eloquently and effectively for years, um, uh, both about the dangers that this specific course is uh, uh, presents and more generally just the dangers that the American approach to the world presents. I, it, it does seem, and, and Chris, please interject, um, the United States really has a belief that the world is only that that the United States can only be safe in the world to the extent that the world becomes like the United States. This isn't a new proposition. This goes back. As a matter of fact, I'm indirectly quoting Dean Rusk, who's talking about this in the uh, it, it, in the 1960s in terms of Vietnam, but that 
if you define any power and uh, as um, as a threat because it doesn't uh, adhere to your professed values, uh, then you're going to be engaged in endless wars. And this is the situation that the United States finds itself in. Uh, so it's, I don't really see, as, as Kelly, you pointed out, there's all of this talk really about regime change. That is the logic of American policy. I mean, in other words, people say, well, look, there's really no, there can be no peace as long as, as the Putin regime is in power in Russia. So therefore, we have to topple the Putin regime, and then we can achieve peace. Uh, we heard the same thing. Of course, this is I'm, I, I'm accidentally echoing the arguments you know uh, that were presented in the run-up to and during the Iraq War. So uh, there's no is is long, the United States personalizes diplomacy and personalizes. Um, uh, uh, any sorts of differences, international differences. And as long as the United States does this, and as long as the United States really does believe that only that any that any power that adheres to a different set of of uh, of beliefs and a, a different ideology is ipso facto a threat, then you know this sort of war is inevitable. And you know, again, I I hate to bring up the two of you once more, but you all know better than anyone that this war it was one of the most predicted and in some ways overdetermined um wars in 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 recent history. Going back to the first discussion of NATO expansion in the early 1990s. Uh Figures like George Kennan um, warned that this uh, that NATO expanding eastward would inevitably bring the United States into a clash with Russia, and more specifically, uh, you know, our current CIA director, the former ambassador to 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 Russia, warned Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice in two thousand eight that incorporating the prospect of incorporating. Uh, Ukraine into NATO would be uh, would be for Russia would be crossing the brightest of uh, of red lines, and Russia would respond. It would see this as a existential threat and would respond accordingly. And Burns made the point, the same point that scholars have made for the for for the past thirty years, that the dangers of NATO expansion generally, and specifically the danger of. NATO incorporating Ukraine is one of the few things that unites the entire Russian political class from the most ardent and atavistic nationalists to the most liberalizing Westerners. And the idea that, you know, that this is something that just Putin uh, objects to and that if only we remove Putin, the problem will be solved is ridiculous because, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, pointed out when Putin raised the objections about the prospect of of Ukraine joining NATO and said that Russia would would find this absolutely unacceptable. Gorbachev said Putin's not saying anything that 
that that we other Russians haven't been saying for years. So don't don't think that this is this is Putin's policy. This is Russia's policy. Uh, so, you know, to the extent I don't even know what the United States is hoping to achieve by regime change. Uh, it I guess it hopes that maybe a more pliant regime could come to power. Uh, it's just as it's probably more likely that there will be uh, just uh, some sort of anarchy and chaos in Russia. And it's certainly more likely or it's just as likely that whatever regime w- would replace Putin would pursue similar policies. You know, I just want to jump in and make a point. I haven't been to Washington in some time, but I bet if I got on a plane and came back and wandered through some offices of the people both in and out of government who are part of the foreign policy establishment, that I would find their maps have excised the word Russia from the territorial space that uh, it formally denoted and instead inserted the term Putania because the idea that Russia is a state with its own history, its own strategic culture, its own political culture uh, that goes back centuries has been completely erased. Now it's all Putin. Well, Ben is right. It's not all Putin. If Putin disappeared, um, the successive successor leadership in Russia would probably have the same view of the world because this is what the Russians have been brought up with for centuries to see themselves as a great power. And to, I mean, the probably we, we all talk about George Kennan in his, his long telegram. You know, he doesn't start by analyzing communist ideology and that as a driver for post-World War II Soviet policy. He starts by talking about, I believe it's a direct quote, the historic Russian fear and insecurity and why American policymakers cannot grasp that moving an alliance whose origins were clearly not just anti-Soviet, but anti-Russian alliance during the Cold War and then after the Cold War, moving that alliance, not just to the borders of the former Soviet Union, but actually incorporating states that were part of the Soviet Union. Why Moscow would not see that legitimately as a threat, as a security threat? And uh, there's sort of a myopia in Washington. And, uh, you know, I always try to explain, I teach a class on grand strategy. I, I try to explain to my students that if you want to have a successful strategy, you need to also know what's motivating your opponents, what's important to them, how they see the world. And it just seems like the American foreign policy establishment is going through the world with blinkers or blinders, maybe both. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's you, you see that in, in many cases, and not just with Russia. Uh, thanks, uh, Chris and Ben, for coming on the show. Uh, that, that myopia that you're talking about, I think it, it's fueled by that desire that you talked about for uh, the strategy of dominance, of, of essentially suppressing and, and beating down all uh, potential challengers. And and so there, there's a, a strong incentive not to see our own actions as threatening, but to, to see the threat only emanating from, from the other side. Uh, you were talking about the, the open door for NATO and how this was the sort of the the thing that no one in Western governments, whether the U.S. or, or in Europe, were willing to challenge uh, in the run-up to the war, or run-up to the invasion in 2022. Um, 
I, I wonder, what, what do you think now, now that we've seen the, the devastation from the war that's followed, uh, do you think there's any chance that the door to further NATO expansion could be closed in the next five to ten years as as recognition of, of the absurdity of further expansion begins to dawn on people, or, or will people simply not acknowledge it even now? Uh, uh, ben, you can start. Well, uh, I'm not optimistic, Dan. I think that the the, the lesson that will be drawn is actually, I mean, we've, 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 we've heard this uh, already during the war that, uh, you know, this confirms the need for uh, further consolidation of the, uh, and, and expansion of the alliance. Uh, so um, I, uh, I don't see any kind of radical rethinking of uh, American policy generally or, or American policy toward toward NATO specifically. Uh, and it's uh, the, the problem is uh, that unless you eliminate uh, uh, Russia as a state or render impotent Russian power, uh, Russia, as Chris pointed out, is going to inevitably uh, view this alliance uh as uh as as a threat uh so in a way this i we are absolutely entering into a period i think of prolonged cold war with uh with russia um and again the problem is that from the point of view of the american foreign policy establishment you have two choices a prolonged cold war with russia or Ending that that Cold War by uh, by by fundamentally changing the the Russian domestic political arrangement, uh, which again Russia is going to see is extremely dangerous and provocative. Uh, but uh, uh, you know we, we keep being confronted by uh, and again Dan Kelly, you know this better than anyone. I mean, the solution to every American problem in, in, in foreign policy seems to always come down to regime change. <laughs> That's the if, if you define our policy in the expansive terms that the United States does, that then you just have to actually make the world into America writ large or the world is going to be full of threats and and uh, uncongenial uh Regimes. Oh, I guess my answer would be a little bit different, mm. but not much. Um, I guess I'd fall back on the greatest of all American philosophers, Yogi Berra, who once observed that making predictions is hard, especially about the future. <laughs> and we don't know how this war is going to turn out. It's possible to imagine outcomes that would be so bad from the American point of view that the American foreign policy establishment would be discredited and that the way would be open for uh, a new viewpoint to take effect in Washington. But, you know, you go back to Donald Trump for, for a moment and all these articles that worried that if Trump became president, there'd be these big changes in American foreign policy. We'd become, quote, unquote, isolationists. We'd leave NATO, quote, unquote. Uh, we become protections. Um, 
none of these things really happen. Well, we could put protectionism on side, but that's now bipartisan. Um, Trump could not, for example, change U.S. policy towards NATO because when Trump came to office, he was basically a singular force. He had no supporting apparatus. He had no what I would call counter foreign policy establishment, no people qualified not only to take important positions in the government, but people sympathetic to a different view of what the U.S. world role should be. So, you know, I think Ben's probably right. Um, unfortunately, it would take a lot to cause a, a fundamental shift in American foreign policy. But I don't say that it's impossible. Um, but I also look back and say, you know, what are the two things that really could change a great power's fundamental view of its world role? One would be losing a war. The other would be some kind of great economic catastrophe. Well, we had the great crash in 2008. We lost the Vietnam War. We didn't exactly win Iraq and Afghanistan. And we still don't see those things causing a fundamental shift um, in American foreign policy. We don't see these events sort of discrediting the elites that have run American foreign policy since World War II. So I guess... I, I'm decide, I guess I'm ambivalent, or maybe, yeah, that's the word, I suppose. On, on one hand, I certainly feel there's a need for fundamental change in American foreign policy. I'm not sure that I see that that's actually going to happen. And yeah, it also illustrates what I think is an important point that I try to make in my grand strategy class is that when, when we talk about grand strategy, people are always thinking about the external world. Who's out there? Who's threatening us? Why are they threatening us? What are the threats? How are we to find them? What do we do about them? But actually, so much of grand strategy, not just for the United States, but for other great powers historically, has been driven by domestic politics, by domestic political concerns. And um, I guess, to me, I'm not an optimist when it comes to thinking that there will be change. I mean, I'd like to believe that there is, but you know, the fundamentals haven't changed. America has a proselytizing ideology, liberalism, spreading democracy, etc. And that proselytizing ideology is married to great material capabilities. And, you know, you don't have to have read Thucydides from front to back to know the dangers of hubris when you have too much power. Uh, in the world, it wouldn't be the first state to shoot ourselves in the foot. Certainly, and and one of the things that 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 uh, proselytizing zeal uh, tends to to create is this hostility to compromise that we we keep seeing this refusal to negotiate, this insistence on regime change, and and I wanted to touch on something that you guys talked about in the article that was quite I thought was quite interesting, because you talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis in some detail uh, as the the last time that we were this close to to the, the dangers of nuclear war. And you say that the Cuban Missile Crisis was resolved not by steadfastness, but by compromise. Uh, and I think that's exactly right. And then you show in the article uh, why that's the case. Um, how can that correct lesson uh, of that crisis be applied to the situation in Europe today? Uh, whoever wants to take well, it. Well, I'm going to be wildly pessimistic uh, uh, 
and say, I just, I don't see it happening for the very reason that, you know, the, 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 the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis suggests. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was, yes, in fact, resolved by compromise. It's essentially a, a, a quid pro quo. We agreed to um, remove um, medium-range nuclear missiles from, from Turkey and uh, a, a country, obviously, adjacent to the then Soviet Union and from from Italy. And, and in return, uh, the Soviet Union withdrew its missiles from from Cuba, uh, missiles that it installed as a reaction to the installation of U.S. missiles in uh, in, in Turkey. Um, but that was um, deliberately, that compromise was deliberately and very, very carefully hidden, not just from the American public, but from the American political elite. Kennedy's own vice president, Lyndon Johnson, had no idea that that compromise was what resolved the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was told, as the American people were told, that this crisis was resolved by, by American steadfastness, by standing tough to authoritarian expansionism, and that if you stand up to these these forces, they will they will crumble. Um, so it was the exact opposite lesson that you have to show force, you have to show strength, and you do not compromise. And you know, there's a very strong argument that those lessons were applied to American policy in Vietnam. And Johnson clearly understood that that was sort of the lesson. That was the lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The American uh, political establishment, the American public at large, really, even to this day, believes that that's the lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis, even though it's been refuted historically. So, you know, I don't see the United States um, uh, in sort of fundamentally changing its 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 foreign policy and and. You guys know better than anyone. Look, the very, I, mean, I think in some ways, until the day before yesterday, everyone was sort of in agreement that, well, or there was a broad agreement that the policy in Iraq and the Iraq war was a disaster for the United States. But the very advocates the, um, and architects of that policy are now arguing for a hard line against U Ukraine. And in fact, people like Victoria Nuland, in fact, are uh, who were responsible for, uh, who were the architects of that policy, are the architects of this policy in, uh, in Ukraine. So, I mean, there's in, uh, the idea that I think there's going to be any kind of fundamental shift in the uh, uh, American... Uh, America's perception of its role in the world and of the kind of policies that it 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 pursues, you know, I I just don't see that happening. Uh, and as Chris said, it you know it it generally takes you know a truly disastrous war. And alas, and this is going to sound callous, I guess the war in Iraq wasn't disastrous enough. I mean, it wasn't uh, it, the the United States has not suffered a um 
you know, a war on its territory has not suffered enormous casualties since really the Civil War. I mean, the, the, the Second World War, of course, was for the United States was a, uh, you know, was 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 a enormous and costly endeavor. But the uh, the casualties the United States suffered compared to all the other major combatants were really minuscule. The United States emerged from the war stronger economically and militarily than it was when it entered the war. Um, so the, the United States, you know, has has remained almost impervious to um, the costs of uh, of expansionism and. The problem is that in a nuclear age, I guess the United, that it will likely be impervious to these costs unless and until there is a nuclear confrontation or at, at the very least uh, a, a near miss of a nuclear confrontation. Um, I, Chris, I don't know if you would agree with that, but, um, uh, you know, I'd like to I, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts. No, I do agree, Ben, and I think there's a point that you raised that we should just make sure and get sharply focused because it's really important. You know, during Afghanistan and Iraq, and in my field, international relations and security studies, we have a group of scholars who sort of made an impression by arguing for policies like offshore balancing or restraint or what I'd like to call strategic self-discipline saying that the United States is fighting too many wars in places that are not really necessary to fight. And what I find odd about this, I mean, I think it's very hopeful that, that we had this group emerge, but most of the people in this group are strongly supporting U.S. policy, the Biden administration's policy in Ukraine and China. As I said, well, wait a second. You know, Iraq and Afghanistan as conflicts are walks in the park compared to what a war with China or Russia would be. It's like, well, if we, if we really believe in restraint, we ought to be asking ourselves, can we find some way to accommodate the great power interests of China and Russia and avoid a major war, uh, which I think is certainly not inevitable, but... I would also say right now it looks highly probable with China. And, you know, let's focus back on Ukraine. The Biden administration is trying to thread a strategic needle. We, we want to build up Ukraine, and give them all kinds of advanced weapons so that they don't lose. But we also say that we don't want them to win too much because let's go back to the nuclear weapons issue. Now, nuclear weapons that we all sort of reassure ourselves, oh, well, nothing's happened since 1945. There's a taboo on using nuclear weapons. I don't think we should be complacent in this particular conflict. There are clear lines that, if crossed, could result in Russia using nuclear weapons, primarily what happens with Crimea. Um, so... We need to really sit back and take a look at the, the risks we're running. We're fighting a proxy war with a, another nuclear great power. And it's all too easy to see how that could slip over into outcomes that we probably should not desire. 
And just waking up this morning and looking at the newspapers with uh, the attacks, the drone attacks on Moscow, which presumably are attributed to Ukrainians. You know, the, the risk of escalation, the risk of things getting out of hand are really there. And instead of adding fuel to the fire, you know, we should be sitting back and reevaluating, you know, what what is the outcome that's really important here? And I think there are two outcomes that are important here. One is to avoid nuclear conflict with the Soviet Union, pardon me, with Russia, to avoid nuclear conflict with Russia, and also to find a way to create a new security architecture for Europe that can accommodate the interests of all the major players in European security, and hopefully be managed by, by the Europeans rather than by the U.S. Well, I'm, I'm afraid we've run out of time, and I'm, I'm glad that we had a little bit of space to talk about broadly about the article, but I really encourage anyone listening to this today to go and read the full essay why Are We in Ukraine on the Dangers of American Hubris by both Schwartz and Lane? Because we didn't scratch the surface of the arguments, the, the different arguments that you made in building your case. And so I think it's it's imperative that people actually read the whole article. But I would love to have you both on the show again, because I, you know, I think you raised the issue first of China, Ben. I think that um, all of the lessons that we are hoping to learn from your article and this setup uh, really play to the, the, the dangers of going down the same path with China over Taiwan. So I hope absolutely come back. Yes, yes, yes. And, 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 and Chris has been a uh, heroic um, uh um, dissenter um, on the issue of U.S.-China policy. And as we know, there are people who agree with us uh, on the issue of, of of Ukraine, and some of them are weird kind of Yes. Um, so, um, you know, so that's, an, it, it, that's terribly important. And, um, uh, you know, I, I would just make one last point which is uh, Chris was bringing up Crimea and the 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 needle that the Biden administration is threading. I see it in a somewhat different way in that I fear that, yes, the the very the, the, that a, Ukra- a Ukrainian victory that would allow Crimea to be incorporated into Ukraine, um, it would be incredibly, that the prospect of that would be incredibly provocative and dangerous and could um, provoke a incredibly dangerous response from Moscow. But it's that very prospect, I think, that the architects of American policy regard as also the 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 possible way of instigating provoking the collapse of the Putin regime so in other words the very thing that could lead to nuclear war from their point of view also has a tremendous opportunities because it would um it would be 
regarded as so disastrous uh, to Moscow that um, that that Putin's power could 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 be challenged. So, you know, I, I think where the United States is concerned, where it sees a provocative policy, it also sees tremendous opportunities for regime change. Two really quick points, if I can. Uh, one is that if you look at all the news analysis stories that we've seen um, in places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post about what's really at stake for the Biden administration in Ukraine, it's China. That in, in someone, yes, there's an element of dealing with Russia, but there's also an element of sending a message to China. Um, I think that's dangerous. And again, um, you know, nobody's really talked about this, but nobody's really thinking about long-term outcomes here. Now, I think if somehow the Ukrainians managed to wrest away Crimea uh, without starting World War III, that it wouldn't be the end of the story. I mean, what, what we're going to see here in all likelihood over the long term is Alsace-Lorraine recreated in Eastern Europe, that whoever loses this conflict, so whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years from now, it's going to want a second bite of the apple to reverse to reverse the outcome. So in a way, not having a, a far-sighted policy of statesmanship and, and accommodation and trying to find a way to create a, a security architecture in Europe that minimizes the risks of conflict. And instead of doing that, we've created a situation where this is going to be a running sore for Russia and Ukraine for a long time in the future, regardless how this particular round ends. And I guess that's my, my point. It's a round. It's not the end of the game. Well, thank you, Ben and Chris, for coming on the show, and we hope to have you on again. Great. Thank you, Kelly, and thanks, Dan. Thanks very much. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.